we'll just move right into the sit. So, um, you know, I'll invite you to just first allow your body to come into a posture that allows you to feel upright and, and grounded. And this is m- more about the energetics than the physical form. As I said, if lying down is going to feel better for your body. By all means, do so. But we're turning towards these ennobling teachings and allowing there to be a, a sense of nobility. I don't know if Jack still talks about this, but back in the day he did about we are um, we today are daughters of the Buddha and allowing ourselves to kind of take that in on an embodied sense of these teachings are liberatory and how can we uh, embody that sense of being available to this gift of liberation, even if it's just for a <laughs> fraction of a moment. Yeah. And so allowing, again, there to be a sense of connection to the energies of the earth, if it's helpful, if your feet are touching the ground. I, I always love the image of imagining roots coming from the bottom of our feet into this rich, loamy soil. It's helpful to imagine us outside and in a meadow or in the woods somewhere and just rooting in, feeling the connection to the earth's energies. If there's any level of agitation in the body or in the mind, imagining if it's helpful, sort of down one leg, there's just this release of all the energy that's not serving us down from the head through one side of the body, down the, say, the right leg, and just releasing all that's not serving us into the soil. The earth can happily alchemize whatever it is and use it. And then through the other foot, that other rooted foot, drinking in this grounded, steady energies of the earth that are helpful. And imagine that almost like a straw drinking that up the left side of the body. And just to play with this image if it's helpful. Releasing, drinking in. Allowing the great generosity of the earth's optimizing abilities to hold us. While also allowing us to feel supported by the energies of the heavens. the vastness of the sky, this sense of spaciousness. And we are between, we are beings that move between and both, connected to both. The earth's energies, the energies of the heavens, and it's almost like clicking in to be available to to these energies of groundedness and spaciousness. And for the anchor of our sit today, invite us to keep a good amount of our attention, 60-70% of our attention in the body. If it's helpful to have your feet stay in the soil, by all means, allow them to stay there. Or just resting in the bones, again, the earth element. Feeling the sit bones, the skeletal form the relative stillness of these bones of ours. Earth element within. Rocks and trees and mountains and hillsides. The ground beneath us, the earth element outside of us. So it is outside, so it is within. So again, just landing here. Oh yeah, (laughs) in the body, in in this earth element in the relative stillness of the body, the bones. And then allowing that uh, 30 or 40 percent of attention, this is kind of the wide angle lens of the mind. And what I want to invite us to hold as our anchor, again, in addition to keeping the attention in the body, in the, in the earth element, bones and then just watching the movement of the thoughts we've certainly done this before but that 
invitation of the sky is the mind is the big blue sky and our thoughts move across like clouds and sometimes they're beautiful puffy clouds and sometimes they're really scary thunder clouds or dark stormy clouds okay again in my mind can hear the line from Rumi's the guest I was like welcome and entertain them all they're merely clouds and we're undertaking the invitation just to reflect upon the patterns. Oh, there's this pattern of judging. There's this pattern of worrying thoughts. There's this pattern of planning thoughts. For me, worrying and planning are very good friends. <laughs> They're often seen together. The thoughts of fantasy, again, uh, future or past, that can sometimes be a helpful notation, like, oh, I'm th- thoughts of the past, you know, or thoughts of the future, neither of which are present. Yeah. So we're just undertaking this training to watch the patterning of the mind. The, the lens is wide, and we're not really trying to manipulate or change anything. We're just noticing, oh, as I sit here, the mind tends to plan, agitate, worry, rest. And it changes. Yeah. So we're also getting this beautiful sense of the impermanence of, oh, thoughts come. Sometimes they stick around. Sometimes they just are replaced by something else. So we're just allowing ourselves to stay centered in the body, connected to the body, and just watching these thought clouds arise and pass, fall away. Sometimes we'll get really absorbed because the thoughts can be so seductive for, even if they're monotonous or repetitive, we can still get caught in them. Okay, we're just noticing. This is a natural patterning for this day in this sit of what's the, where the mind goes. Again, with a gaze of a gentle curiosity, it's like this. In the mind, it's like this. Rooted in the body and noticing these patterns of, of the thinking mind, patterns of thought. No need for it to be otherwise. Just this gentle, open, curious awareness huh in this moment this thought pattern looks like this and the labeling can just be helpful to kind of give it a form planning worrying judging comparing checked out steady unified please remember there's no such thing as a bad sit we come we take our seats we just see how it is to be alive and human in this body in this moment and in the next
so nice to sit together. <laughs> it's always a little tempting, like, let's just <laughs> sit the whole time. Um, and I hope, however, that sit went, there was just a, a sense of settling. And I know sometimes sitting is just hard, right? But just the, um, it's such a delight to be able to sit together. Um, last week, we completed our tour of the, the perfections of the heart. Uh, Ajahn Suchito's The Book, The Parmes. And there were some questions last week about compassion and empathy and sorrow. And I wanted to kind of pick that thread up and work with it today. Um, um, mind going in a couple different things. I'm going to start with a poem. Many of you know, I read it a lot, um, but just to kind of open the doorway to the, so cross the threshold, shall we, together on um, on these foundational qualities of the heart. So it's by Naomi Shiab Nye, Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. That is one of my favorite poems. And I think that beautiful um, invocation of before you know kindness, that's the deepest thing or the the tender gravity of kindness, you must know sorrow. And we're in a time, we've been in a time, I think all humanity has always been in a time of these waves of sorrow, both in our, where we feel it individually impacting our personal lives. And then in the larger sense of what's happening in the world and has been happening in the world um, always. And that this movement of sorrow, um, the question last week of the, not so much the maybe the relationship between sorrow and compassion and often in the teachings as I was looking into this this week and playing around exploring it's the 10,000 joys the 10,000 sorrows those tend to be coupled together joy and sorrow and I my in speaking with other uh, dharma friends this idea of sorrow as I experience tends to be much more um in the person, the, a, a felt sense of the, in the personality, if that makes sense, pain and sorrow, uh, that it's more limited to the human experience as um, more of a referencing the self, the sorrow we may feel for, as compared to um, compassion as a very expansive quality. It's a place we can abide in compassion. We can, uh, the qualities of empathy that are wedded through, woven through compassion and that sorrow uh, that as I feel into it, there's a there's a heaviness, but it feels much more um, personal. Again, it's more self-referential. The sorrow I may feel, it's also not onward leading. There's not, um, compassion is the sense of expansion, and compassion has the energy, the, the action to it. The Kuan Yin's seated ready to respond to the cares of the world, right? There's an equanimous quality to a compassionate heart. A soft heart is like it's, it's like oh it's heavy. There's a weight on my shoulder. There's a compression. There's a contraction, um, and a despair seems like a good friend of sorrow. Uh, and again, that sense of it not being onward leading, that you can spiral into into sorrow, into despair, into pain. And these teachings of the Brahma Viharas or the um, um, divine abodes of loving kindness, metta, karuna, compassion joy and equanimity are like, hey, hey, we're here to help, like the safety net of the heart, such that we don't drop into a place of extended sense of sorrow or pain or 
disappointment, the dukkha of life, yeah, the suffering, the dissatisfaction, those are all um, movements, waves that come, right? We don't really go through a day without experiencing <laughs> some form of dissatisfaction or stress or pain in some form, whether it's physical pain or um, the pain of being human, right? It, these are natural, um, this is just the air and the water that we breathe. Yeah, the, this human realm is is um, not without opportunities to work with with the pain and the sorrow, but those qualities in and of themselves, left alone, are not liberatory. Whereas compassion is, it's one of the places where, when with the heart, the steadiness of um, the balanced heart is the ultimate pathway to liberation. I feel. Um, I want to share. There are a lot of ways I could go, <laughs> but I can share a little bit from Christina Feldman's book, which I quote from all the time. I, I love it. Um, and sometimes I, when I read it before class, I'm like, I should just read from, <laughs> from this book um, that Christina teaches. Uh, she's such a beautiful writer. Um, com- compassion is concerned with our response to the sorrow and pain illuminated through mindfulness and befriended with metta. Um, and this, I, oh, excuse me. <laughs> In the early teaching, compassion has two primary interdependent elements. The first of these described in Pali is anakapa. It is profound empathy, the trembling, the quivering of the heart in in the face of suffering or pain wherever it it is met inwardly or outwardly. One who develops this capacity for empathy is described as one who pulsates with compassion or one who can truly listen to the cries of the world. Empathy is the forerunner of the second aspect of compassion. The Pali word karuna describes the engaged dynamic of responsiveness, the translating of empathy and understanding into our thoughts, words, and actions. Karuna, which is what we speak of often, uh, that's the most frequently used um, translation of compassion. So karuna is concerned with the embodiment with the courageous engagement of small and large manifestations of the pain and suffering we inevitably meet. It is a commitment to healing suffering when it can be healed, uprooting the causes of suffering when they can be uprooted, and being steadfastly present in the face of pain and sorrow that has no end. (laughs) That, to me, sort of sums it all up. And this courageous aspect of compassion to say, okay, I'm going to turn towards the sorrow. I will turn towards the pain to sit beside it. If, even within ourselves, the own, the grief, the sorrow that we may hold from our lives, our traumas, our conditioning, everything. Can we turn towards it and say, okay, this too, making space for, again, sort of connecting ourselves to the heavenly realms of spaciousness. This too, can I feel the support of the Dharma, our Sangha, to have a sense of connection, to turn towards the pain. And Christina, if I may share the story that uh, Christina shared with me earlier about the weekend with Jack and Trudy. And there was a long time, long time practitioner um, in his seventies, I believe you said, who shared a, a tragedy in his own family. And Jack was like, I, I can't hold that, but turn towards the Sangha. <laughs> I wasn't even there and it makes me cry. Turn towards the Sangha and they will hold you. And Christina shared that the gentleman then turned and all faces all just like we are here and could really the offerings of compassion from his sangha mates. And that Christina shared that she could see how it, he was um, moved uh, and the, the drinking in of the metta and the compassion really could change this, this man's heart and our capacity to offer that to another by being able to sit with to say, I see you, that there's a quality that is so wired into us to need to be seen, to be attuned to, um, to have a sense of being felt. Dan Siegel, psychiatrist, talks about this, um, that we're wired this way. And many of us, for whatever reasons, didn't get this as kids. So it becomes something like, what? <laughs> that can happen? And then we seek it out. But when we can have it have be met in that way, oh, there's a resonance. And in sitting in this empathetic um, 
equanimous pose, and I'm sort of using them almost synonymously, though they are distinct, to be able to sit with our own, turning towards our own pain or that of another. It is in the tuning in of, I see you. And to be on the receiving end of being seen, that's kind of the whole human game, in my mind, of being able to have that experience that we, that we can offer to another, that we can also receive. And what I am so moved by the story Christina shared with me of that the gentleman could receive it. And again, if we didn't grow up receiving it, it's kind of hard and, or even sometimes hard to, well, I'll just share this, that when I first started uh, working the family retreats way back, um, it was a marvel to me. And it makes me cry to think about it, of watching families on, on the Spirit Rock retreats with their kids. I was like, this is how it can go because there was just so much ease. And this, um, what these teachings can offer us a way of um, a way of being in the world that may not have been familiar to us when we were young, but it, the Buddha would be like, it's here right now. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh's like happiness, joy, kindness, it's available to help yourself. And as we work with the patterning of the mind that might tell us that we're not worthy, we're not good enough, something's wrong with us, or the various permutations that voice can take, it keeps us separate. It keeps us isolated. And as we keep working with these qualities of the heart from an embodied sense of, oh, this is what it feels like to connect, you know, in those early uh, arriving sits that we do, those 10 minutes of can we allow ourselves to connect with someone that we love or a dog <laughs> or a cat or a place? Oh, yeah, there's the heart. There's the quivering of the heart, resonance with another. This is from Dan Siegel. Um, he, in neuroscience, they talk about the mirror neurons. Again, we are wired to be connected to another. So my... But even on Zoom, we can sort of read each other. There's a uh, conversation that's happening energetically between what we notice from someone's facial expressions, from the um, the embodied essence of another, we resonate with that or not, right? We know the feeling like (laughs) something's off or that this pure delight of being able to connect with someone. So in in an empathy and compassion study, noting mirror neurons, which are like sponge neurons, I simply resonate with someone else. But if you end there, then you're not differentiating from others, kind of emerging, which isn't necessarily helpful. And Dan Siegel, I took this course, uh, his inner, inner neurobiology course, and he's all about integration. That health is all about an integration of the nine domains of consciousness, whether it's um, the physical or the emotional, or um, I'm not going to go through them all, but this way of living from an embodied, integrating heart and mind. And I've spoken of this too, this um, when the heart and the mind and the body, there's a congruence, there's a sense of integration there. There's a sense of balance. There's equanimity. And this ability to rest in this repose of compassion imbued with empathy, with in, 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 I'm sorry, imbued with in, empathy and equanimity. Uh, Christina Feldman in the book and an article she's written also includes patience as a vital family member to compassion, steadiness to say, Okay, I'll have the patience to sit down here with this, beside the suffering of within my own self or with another. A steadiness, yeah. And again, I hope you can hear the essential weaving together of these qualities of compassion and patience and empathy and equanimity. Oh, there's a heart that can be, that can tremble with someone else's suffering and not be dropped into a pit of sorrow or dropped into pity or aversion, but just, okay, there's enough steadiness and internal steadiness to say, okay, this too. It's like we're supported. Um, we're in the back body, so to speak. Um, integration is the basis of well-being, back to Dan Siegel. Recognizing that your brain is not another's brain. So we can have that empathetic connection. Empathy is a, is a feeling. That, um, Dan has a line of, um, we can make a map of somebody else's experience, a map of the mind of another. It's a resonance of, oh, I know I can feel what you're feeling, but we don't want to stop there, right? Because then we can drown. <laughs> so sort of again, being buoyed by the compassion, that vaster sense of experience of in this world, there is suffering. We know this, we know this intimately. And so it's so helpful to lean in again to the balancing qualities of equanimity. 
okay, this too, to then allow us to be able to sit more comfortably with our own pain or another's. Uh, back to what uh, Dan Siegel said, compassion requires empathy. It's like a building block. Connections we have with others, illuminated by the notion of integration. This is true. We can have a sense of equanimity. It expands our window of tolerance, to use his phrasing of our ability to sit with uh, and staying integrated and still function. He writes about, and others have mentioned this too, um, working like the, the threat state or, or terror state, terror management. When And when we're in this place, which we're seeing all the time on the news, uh, this uh, we shut down this com- this mechanism of ours, this way of being of compassionate and open and resonance with others shuts down and we move into a tightening up our, our circle of concern shrinks. We limit this window of tolerance and we only want to take care of, care of people who look like us, who we think are like this. Um, and our circle of compassion that can be vast and open, goes, Ooh, we become more tribal. And um, the power of the mind with intention to use our attention to get the brain to rise out of its automatic way of looking at people who might not look like us when we are under threat and therefore treating them with hostility. So there's a natural sort of the the threat response is going to shut down. Like you're not like me, I'm scared. And I'm going to respond with hostility. There's a um, instinctive response of that. And and Dan Siegel and all of our Buddhist teachers pointed, well, yeah, but we don't have to be governed by that. It's a reaction. It's an impulse. It's a it's a response. It's I'm sorry. It's a reaction. It's not a response. Response I take to mean much more. Like, oh, let's look at this. What is that first impulse? That reactivity. Okay, can I rise above it through this vast skill set that we cultivate week after week of these tools of mindfulness and awareness and presencing to say, is that really how I want to show up? And what's true? Yeah, the stories we tell about someone that might not be like us. It's a story we tell ourselves about someone that might be like us because actually there's um, so much more, obviously, that is so profoundly similar as we as we are humans. Um, more on that in a minute. The power and the potential of the human mind is to rise above the brain's evolution. Uh, we can rise above the brain's tendencies with mental training. We know we can rise above our implicit bias making a space between impulse and in action, that there's a buffer uh, and to understand that I am more than my brain's automatic response. And again, there's a liberation in, oh yeah, <laughs> I don't have to be governed by that reactivity. And I feel like part of a central part of our practice here is really allowing there to cultivate that space to have a response. There's an impulse, there's the startle. Okay, what's true? what's actually happening in Tarbrock's fabulous line with regard to our thinkings, real, but not true. And so this in, in investigation as we sit and settle, what's true. Um, move into poems. There's this my greedy mind at work of what can I share? <laughs> um, but I want to, my grandmother watches her feet in the sink of the bathroom at Sears by Moshe Kaf. This is kind of long, so bear with me. My grandmother puts her feet in the sink of the bathroom at Sears to wash them in the ritual washing for prayer, wadu, because she has to pray in the store or miss the mandatory prayer time for Muslims. She does it with great poise, balancing herself with one plump matronly arm against the automatic hot air handryer after having removed her support knee highs and laid them aside folded in thirds, and given me her purse and her packages to hold so she can accomplish this august ritual and get back to the ritual of shopping for housewares. Respectable Sears matrons shake their heads and frown as they notice what my grandmother is doing, an affront to American porcelain, a contamination of American standards by something foreign and unhygienic, requiring civil action and possible use of disinfectant spray. They fluster about and flutter their hands, and I can see a clash of civilizations brewing in the Sears bathroom. My grandmother, though she speaks no English, catches their meaning, and her look in the mirror says, I have washed my feet over the Iznik tile in Istanbul with water with water from the world's ancient irrigation systems. 
I have washed my feet in the bathhouses of Damascus over painted bowls imported from China, among the best families of Aleppo. And if you Americans knew anything about civilization and cleanliness, you'd make wider you'd make wider washings. My grandmother knows one culture, the right one, as do these matrons from of the Middle West. For them, my grandmother might as well have been squatting in the mud over a rusty tin and vaguely tropical squalor, Mexican or Middle Eastern, it doesn't matter which, when she lifts her well-groomed foot and puts it over the edge. You can't do that. One of the women protests, turning to me, tell her, she can't do that. We wash our feet five times a day, my mother declares hotly in Arabic. My feet are cleaner than their sink. Worried about their sink, are they? I should worry about my feet. My grandmother nudges me. Go on, tell them. Standing between the door and the mirror, I can see at multiple angles my grandmother and the other shoppers, all of them decent and good-hearted women, diligent in cleanliness, grooming and decorum. Even now, my grandmother, not to be rushed, is delicately drying her pumps with tissue from her purse. For my grandmother always always wears well-turned pumps that match her purse. I think in case someone from one of the best families of Aleppo should run into her here in the front of the Kenmore display. I smile at the Midwestern women as if my grandmother has just said something lovely about them and shrug at my grandmother as if they had just apologized through me. No one is fooled. But I hold the door open for everyone and we all emerge on the sales floor and lose ourselves in great in the great common ground of the housewares on my on my <laughs> Passion by Miller Williams. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want want to. What seems conceit, bad manners, or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on down there where the spirit Um, there's a practice that Adam Sufitel offers of, of just like just like me, and this poem and the Sears uh, appliance division. I, I'm so moved by it of this idea, well, this illustration of the tendency of judging something that's not that we're not familiar with, and being the the heartfulness of in which this scene is described that we don't always understand what other people are doing. We don't always understand other people's experiences. And can we refrain from that automatic, because I don't know it, it's not right. Because I don't know it, there's something wrong. And allowing, there's this invitation to, can I have, for each of us to drop into the sense of, if we allow ourselves to really abide in a heart that is infused with loving kindness, karuna, compassion, joy and equanimity, there's much there's a much easier access to saying yes yes to the experience yes to being available to another's experience that and a, a much more availability to be able to step out of the the instinctual judgment or um yeah that judgment that can come so quickly we're wired to judge by slowing down enough with patience and a steadfast heart to be able to see, oh, you and I are not so different. And being able, what might it be like to move in the world, of being able to view it that way as opposed to, again, the wiring of implicit bias that says, oh, something is different, I need to be scared, to be able to, at this time in our human's existence on Earth, to be able to start orienting towards, oh, actually, we're very much alike. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Kind of pull your energy back into your own body. Just check in how the body's feeling, feet on the floor. And while your eyes are closed, I'm actually going to read one more poem. So it's called, it's by Irene Sippo. It's called Tired. Sitting across the aisle on the B train, I look at the row of weary faces, various shapes, sizes, colors, ages, a horizontal explication of what it means to have woken many mornings, to brave routine, to leave concerns at home, along with scattered laundry and unwashed dishes, to head for the same same at work, 
I picture each of you one at a time. I try to observe without you knowing, and suddenly I see round, soft faces. No creases in foreheads, no wrinkles like parentheses around eyes. No downturned mouths or no slumped shoulders. I see the plump babies you once were. And with that, a rush of hoping that you were affectionately held on generous laps, that you were sung tender songs, that you were offered a bowl of blueberries as initiation to messy pleasures of this world. I hope that you occasionally reach back, even if only briefly, to recall your beginning self as a visitor new to the planet, unencumbered and dear. So with your eyes closed, inviting each of us to recall back to our infant selves, beginning as a new visitor to this planet, unencumbered and dear. And letting yourself stay free of any stories of of your actual childhood, but sort of touching into this new life that began on this earth. If possible to imagine holding this tender new life, this dear unencumbered being, And as you hold and rock yourself, infant self, drinking in your own affection, your own warmth, your own compassion and loving kindness, the joy and delight you may feel and imagining holding this infant self of yours, the equanimity of, oh, sweetie, it might be a rough ride. And then if this feels helpful, sort of imagining those um, carriers, whether it's a baby in a sling or the baby Bjorn or the the wrapping of the baby um, swaddling um, on the back, somehow uh, allowing this infant tender, unencumbered in your self, such that your hands are free and you're able to walk out into the world and to imagine as you do, whether it's your neighborhood street or in in your town or at the grocery store, imagine seeing the other humans and imagining these other humans as is offered in this poem without creases in their face, without wrinkles. No downturn mouths, no slump shoulders. Seeing the plump babies that we all were unencumbered and dear. New visitors to this planet. What might it be like to move in the world? Imagining our fellow humans have these vulnerable, bright beings unencumbered and dear. There's no story, no narrative, no life trajectory, just a being with bright eyes, unencumbered and dear. How does the heart respond? Can you notice this on an embodied sense. This tender, vulnerable, unencumbered way we all started, regardless of backgrounds, economics, where and when, under what circumstances. practice of just like me, just as I was a baby, so this person was a baby. And again, this is from Ajahn's detail. Just like me, imagine seeing these faces in the grocery store or on the street, or if you're driving, that person there was once a baby, just like me, unencumbered and dear. Or 
Sangha sisters here were once babies, unencumbered and dear, just like me. Again, just noticing if we allow ourselves to truly drop into this truth, what arises? It might be aversion, it might be a, a pushing away. Okay. Might there also be a, a, a deepening of a sense of connection and belonging? Yeah, just like me. Just like me. I want peace or ease. Just like me, I want to feel safe. Just like me, I want to laugh. And giggle and hold a hot, hot cup of tea. Just like me, like a heart that abides in compassion, infused with empathy and patience, equanimity, trust, joy, loving kindness, balance, delight. Just like me, we were all once unencumbered and dear. <laughs>